0: Alright, friends. Welcome back to the show. It is my honor to be joined today again by the Reverend Dr. Scott McKnight. Welcome back to the show, sir. Luke,
1: good to be with you. Good to be with you.
0: You know, you get multiple honorific titles because you've earned them, but one thing that I feel like people should talk about more often is there's a rumor that, and I think it's actually a true rumor, that years ago you were a high jumper that got over the seven foot mark. Is that oh, true or no. false?
1: No, I di- I was a high jumper. Okay, but I never jumped seven feet. Six nine.
0: Okay, six nine. When that's I,
1: when, that's when I was a junior in high school, and then I had knee surgery, so my career was over, basically, as oh. a high jumper.
0: Six nine. That's a that's yes. a that's a good one.
1: Pretty decent at the I time. I,
0: yeah. I, as a pole, a former pole vaulter, many years oh, ago, right? pole vaulter myself uh, was a walk on at Avondale Christian University, where I didn't deserve to be on the track with some of our athletes, including a high jumper who went, I feel like he was a seven-two high jumper and yeah. uh, won a few national championships. So 6'8", or 6'9", that's pretty close. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I know yeah. you, you tried a little pole vaulting yourself back in the day as well. Uh,
1: I was a, I got second in the state decathlon in 1972. So really? I had to pole vault some. I think I only vaulted 10'6", but I was never luke you'll laugh at this i was never too keen on that po-
0: that pole bending <laughs> no no that's a that's a weird thing i've i've yeah. broken a pole or two back in my day and i've seen a few break in more dramatic fashions and it is unnerving it is very yeah. unnerving you yeah. were I, now my track coach in college said hey maybe you should try the decathlon and then he saw me jump and run he's like no you shouldn't just just stick yeah. with the, the pole, pole which <laughs> uh which of the 10 was your favorite events
1: well i was a high jumper but um I, my father was a track coach, so I grew up. Uh, I I could do any event in track. Sometimes my father would just say, "We need some points and hurdles tonight. Go hurdle." Uh-huh. But um, the odd one was, I was a pretty decent shot putter. I I threw, I put, I shot, I putted the shot forty nine eleven and a half <laughs> in high school. <laughs> so I wanted fifty feet so bad, but I never could get it.
0: So, if you don't mind me asking, as a high schooler, how big were you? What what were you we weigh in? 165. Okay, one, that's six, that's what I was assuming it was not. Yeah. That's a pretty good shot put.
1: That yeah. is Well, I grew up doing it. I grew I had one in the yard and my dad had an indoor shot put that cracked. And this was in the day when they were plastic and it leaked really? a little bit, so it was no longer legal. So I had one around the house and I was forever
0: just I learned how to do it. So Wow. Yeah. Who would, I never would have guessed. The, the high jump, I could, you know, that doesn't surprise me. The shot put, like, that's a that's a pretty good throw right there. It's decent, yeah. 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 And your son got into baseball, though, right? And he became yeah, a scout for the Cubs, is that right? Well, yeah, Lucas
1: played five years in the Cubs organization, played college baseball, then mm. got drafted by the Cubs, played five years, uh, worked in the Cubs front office for 15 years, became the assistant scouting director, then he resigned. And he's now, and then uh, he, two years later, he got picked up, or he signed with the Cleveland Guardians. He's now the senior scout for the Cleveland Guardians, which is the old Indians. Yeah, yeah. So, so we are now fans of the Cleveland Guardians, and we change teams like LeBron James.
0: How did that work out for you? Was that tough? Was it tough? Nope. You, nope. You're a Chicago nope. guy. Yeah, we cheer for we cheer for our son. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good for you. Of course you do. I've got a guy from my church who works in the uh, Oakland A's organization. He's a regional scout. And years ago, he picked a undersized outfielder from Texas as their first overall pick. And that gentleman's name is Kyler Murray. And so the whole season where Kyler Murray is playing phenomenal as a football player, where he's going to be the first overall draft pick for the uh, Arizona Cardinals, which you know, but some of my listeners might not. He's playing out of his mind. And I'm seeing him every Sunday going, oh, you're fine. You're fine. There's no way he's going to go to the NFL. He did. He did. And it didn't work out too well for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Such as as professional sports. Well, I'm glad your son is doing well. And I'm glad that you've, like LeBron, taken your talents and your allegiance (laughs) To, to another to, to another place yeah good for you now let me ask you a question what is it what is harder for you as a sports fan and as a biblical scholar to change your allegiance for your baseball team or to change your favorite translation of the new testament which would be harder <laughs> for you to do um okay here's this is this is the tr- the
1: absolute truth and it's been the case since i was in college i mm-hmm. do not have a f- well, I did for a while. Okay. I really don't have a favorite translation. I use the translation of the audience where I'm speaking. Oh. But at home, like, like I have an NIV sitting here and an NRSV. Yeah. I don't have the new little one, but because um, there's a new updated edition of the NRSV, I uh, when I'm writing, it just depends on the publisher. So when I'm doing these everyday Bible studies for Zondervan. I have to use the NIV, Mm -hmm. but I'm writing, I'm right now uh, beginning a project on the Pharisees and there I'll use the NRSV updated edition. So I don't
0: have, I don't have a favorite. So to say it's easier for you to switch translations than it is a baseball team because you don't really have, you don't have one, but you, uh, the reason we're talking today is because you have a new translation of the new Testament that's coming out. And we've had a few people on the show names that you would recognize, um, David Bentley Hart, Tom Wright, uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, who have had their own translations come out. And this is way above my pay grade. I took a few semesters, a few years of of, uh, Greek. I don't have the ability to do it. Obviously you do. Um, But is there some level of intimidation to go, I am going to rewrite the Bible? Like, what do you think when you're like, you know, I'm going to, here's my version. Here's my take on the Bible. How does that go? Well,
1: I think the a couple things, and it's a it's a fair question, but it's pretty intimidating that you had all those people on on the show. Um, I re, I read uh, heart cover to cover. Um, when I've always in classes translated the scripture, you know, without uh-huh. looking at the NIV because. Uh-huh. My students, I wanted to show them I can read Greek. I don't need a translation to figure out the words. Yeah. Um, so I've I've always done it. So I, it wasn't that weird to translate it. Mm-hmm. But what was weird is for a publisher to ask me to do it. You mm-hmm. know, I had always been doing it, but to put it in print and to do it from a different angle, because because I really liked John Golden Gay's First Testament. Mm-hmm. I really liked it a lot. And when I saw it published with Tom Wright's Kingdom New Testament, I told the publisher in the United States for for Golden Gate uh, University, I said, you know, those two those two translations don't belong together. And he said, why is that? I said, well, John Golden Gate's theory of translation is much more formal and literal, uh, word for word, as somehow people some people call it, and and Tom Wright's is just uh, you know, an excellent uh, balance of real accuracy along with very interesting English, and Tom has the ability to do this. Uh-huh. So, and of course, Eugene is paraphrasing. Yeah. But um so uh, I told him that, and he said, "What do you think should be done about it?" I said, "Well, you you guys need to have a translation that goes with Golden Gate." And they said, "Would you, he said Would you do it?" I said, "Yes, just Come like on. that." So I spent two years every morning, at least three to four hours every day, translating the Greek New Testament. And it took about six seven months just to go over it a second time. Wow. And then uh, the proofing stage was next to impossible. Why is that? Because I couldn't read it without looking at the Greek. And I needed to read it without looking at the Greek in order to proof it well, because I can't stop every third word and say, what's the Greek word here, etc. So it was, yeah. it, you know, it, it's hard. It's hard to proof stuff you've written. It's
0: a lot harder to proof a translation. Uh, I, I've had to proofread a few things that I've written, uh, nothing in comparison to a translation of the Bible. So I, I agree that that seems very redoubtable to to do that task. Uh, one of the things that you kind of hinted upon in what you just said is what you're trying to accomplish with the translation. And there's a phrase by a, uh, a gentleman, um, oh, where was it? The rage to explain. Is that uh, Alter, Robert Alter? Uh,
1: I think that's Robert Alter. Yeah. The and tradute, so- tradute, tradute tra, uh, what is it? Uh, the translator is the traitor, is the other language. It's hmm. It's in Italian that people repeat this all the time.
0: Yeah, I I don't do much Italian these days, Uh, so I'll I'll leave that over to you as the far more educated person in this conversation. But the Rage to Explain is part of the reason sometimes we would uh, value maybe more the English reading than the Greek, and part of what you're trying to do, if if I'm correct, I think David Bentley Hart also kind of was going a a similar stream of, you want to be more true to the Greek than to the English. First of all, is that a fair statement about what you're doing, and if so, why? Yes,
1: yes, that is true, and I see Robert Alter on your shelf over your right ear, I think it's your right ear. Just you never know when a camera is flipping it. Yeah, no, it's um, right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, there is that. There is that temptation to explain, to use two or three words to make sure people f- get the sense that you think is in that text. Uh-huh. And um, Luke, I tried to resist that every word. Yeah. It's not easy familiarity with the Greek text familiarity I shouldn't say with the English translations is always in the way of translating the New Testament Hmm. so you just can't I I was so um, I had so much fun with trying to resist the familiarity that I asked my first editor because she then left and went to another publisher I asked her if I could just insert the King James Version for the Lord's Prayer and she said, she said, no, you can't do that. I said, I, I just feel like that's what I should do. It should surprise everybody that that's what, because mm-hmm. uh, that's the only one we know. But um, the rage to explain is, is a constant temptation in translation because you want to make this sound and read by what you're interpreting it to say. Mm-hmm. And when the text does not say what you want, not enough. hmm people want to translate it a little bit more completely. And let me I'll give you an example. The NIV has a notorious, for me, it's a notorious mistake. Now, Doug Moo, who is involved with the committee, would not agree with me. But the Greek word for, there's a Greek word, ergon, and it's usually translated work. The plural erga is works, okay? The NIV, when it is negative, they use the word works. Mm -hmm. But when it's positive works, they translate it as deeds. Okay. Now, that makes sense to Protestants who are nervous about good works. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it is not what the Greek text says. It's using the same word, so do your best to use the same word. Yeah. And I'm reading Josephus right now, the the Jewish war, and I'm reading a translator who changes Greek words routinely. The same Greek word he could have, two sentences later, he'll use a different word. Because he's trying to give sense. But this is what we do in translating. We try to make it a natural English equivalent, but when we do that, we ruin the opportunity for our readers or listeners to be able to make the connections that were actually made in the text. Yeah. So, uh, yes... That's a long-winded answer to
0: your question. No, it's, it's a great answer because it, it, it illuminates for some of us who've never heard conversations like this, the actual process of translating the Bible, that there are moves that you're making, like the works and deeds translation of the same word, yeah. where that's not just a translation, that's an interpretation. And yeah, yeah, it reminds yeah. me of, at our church, we have uh, American Sign Language uh, offered. And one of the things that I've learned is that you can't say translating you have to say interpreting because they're at least aware of the fact that what you just described isn't just a translation move it's an interpretation and i don't know if you saw there was a tweet and i I try not to get on twitter well i i I never engage on twitter i'll read as a voyeur occasionally but where there's someone who tried to say hey don't ever think you need a phd to tell you what the bible says and like I, i get like a plain reading of scripture there's a great value to that i'm not dismissing that but whatever we're reading is already having an interpretation in the middle of it and even oh, yeah. if i don't oh, yeah. see that deeds and works is an interpretive move it's already there whether i want to acknowledge it or not
1: yeah okay look look at revelation chapter 1 verse 1 this is an interesting oh i got to get to you know you know bibles aren't made to look up the last book in the bible yeah they're tough okay no the niv has the revelation Pretty mm-hmm. standard translation of apocalypsis. From Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants, okay? Um, this is And then the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ.
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: the Greek text says the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in the second one, it says the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, why did they translate one from and one of Because the Greek is, there's no word there for from, Mm -hmm. it's just uh, the Jesus Christ revelation, you know, the revelation Jesus Christ, and there's a relationship, you have to kind of figure it out. Well, that sort of thing is an interpretation. They decided that the kind of, it's called a genitive, the kind of genitive at the beginning is a genitive of source, the revelation that came from Jesus Christ, which is pretty decent translation there, Mm -hmm. but... That's not what the Greek text says. And there is a Greek word for from, and the author didn't use it. And then the testimony of Jesus Christ, that could be the testimony from Jesus Christ too, or the testimony about Jesus Christ. And they left it sort of bland, which is exactly what the Greek text has. Hmm. So this is uh, every word in translation is an interpretation And I sought to be as uninterpretive as possible. Uh It's impossible, but I tried.
0: And so you were fine for it to feel awkward as we read it, because, for example, the Revelation text you you just read, there's some level of awkwardness in there that we have to sit with. And instead of um, the temptation to make it more palatable for the English reader, you give us the experience of the actual Greek, and so we have to sit with that. Do you think that that will make it uncomfortable for some, that they're not willing to sit in that level of ambiguity that the text gives us? Oh, yeah. Now, for
1: here's a good another another example. There's a famous expression, the faith of Jesus Christ in Romans. In Paul. Yeah, Romans 3. Could be the faith in Jesus Christ or the faithfulness that Jesus Christ himself exercised. Mm-hmm. All right. The actual Greek could be translated the Jesus Christ faith. So it, it's unspecified there. And mm-hmm. I, I like unspecified when the text is not specified. So I try mm-hmm. to, uh, and I like what you just said, uh, to sit with the ambiguity uh, is a part of translation and a part of, in, of reading and interpretation. If I give you the opportunity... To sit with it and then make up your own mind. I've done a better job than determining for myself the only thing that you're going to see.
0: Mm-hmm. L- let me read that text. This is Romans three, starting verse twenty-one. Uh, this is uh, Doctor McKnight's translation. Uh, like, like I said, Romans three twenty-one. So this, you have you have my <clears throat> translation. You have a copy. Well, I got. I, they sent me a PDF. I asked for a, okay. a hard copy. They didn't but, give me that. So anyway, yeah, I don't have one either. Yeah. Well, okay. Okay, I guess I'm good company. But here's here's the text you just referenced. Now, apart from the code, we'll talk about why you didn't use the word law, but you used code. Now, apart from the code, God's rightness is made apparent being witnessed by the code and the prophets. God's rightness through uh, Jesus. How would you pronounce that? Jesus. Jesus. That's the Greek word for Jesus. I, I took seven semesters. I should have been better at that. But you were right there. And I just didn't want to get called out after the fact. Okay. Jesus Christos, allegiance. Jesus Christ's faith for everyone who is allegiant, quotation, for there is no distinction for all sin and lack God's splendor, being righted as a gift by his grace through the liberation that is in Christos Jesus. All right, a couple questions. Yeah. First one, you have refrained from uh, certain theological terms so that we would get more meaning from the context that they're in. So the first one yeah. that jumps out is the word "law's not there it's the word code and instead of law throughout you're using covenant code instead um, so we have that phrase now apart from the code what yeah. do you think that will do for your listeners' experience with that text when the first thing they hear is not the law but the code
1: okay this is this is an interesting thing that I faced all the time uh, good question Luke the um when you translate the word law, uh-huh. the Greek word is "nomos." When you translate it with the word law, it all of a sudden gets lost. Not, and not in a bad way, but it gets, uh, let's say, swallowed up in a conversation in the Reformation, especially. Uh-huh. Or you can go back to St. Augustine. But Luther and Calvin, they were fighting about the law. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think the law is bad because it's Moses, and dispensationalism assigns it to an old era, Mm -hmm. and Lutherans assign it to something like this, and then the Reformed are talking about three uses of the law. So a word that is used like that, that has such a rich theological history connected to it, doesn't ever get to have the secondary readings that every... Lexicon. Every dictionary will give to you. So at, chi- at times, I chose minority readings, minority translations, because they never get represented. Because mm-hmm. everybody just says that's law, so we'll go with law. Um, and then along with that is the uh, I have a big copy of Justinian's Code, which is the Roman law book. Mm-hmm. So I had I had the, I had that as one of them. But the key for me was. Um, And I don't do this every translation. I do it every chapter that the word law or namos would occur. I have covenant code first. And then from that point on, it's just code. So the law of Moses is actually a code for Israelites who are in the covenant. So it's a covenant code, a way of life. And when I, uh, you are I think just barely old enough to remember this, there were a certain kind of movement of of post-evangelicals that were concerned with a code of life for, for a couple of years. They were all trying to adopt a code of life. Mm-hmm. That's what the law is for the Jew. So that's why I chose the word code.
0: Okay, so let's, let's keep going. There's a lot in here. Uh, yeah. Next, God's rightness. Okay, we're going to stop with rightness. Because instead okay. of righteousness, which is what we're used to, you go with rightness. Yeah. Tell me why. Okay, the the uh, Greek, the Hebrew word tzedek and the Greek
1: word dikaiosune are a big data bank in the Jewish world. All yeah. right. So Paul had this, and we have a, an entire history of debate about the meaning of justification in the theological circles, Reformation. Catholics, everybody's been fighting about this, new perspective, old perspective. The apocalyptic people use the word rectification. Well, the Greek word and the Hebrew word are connected to an English basic word, right. Mm -hmm. Something could be made right, said right, uh, look right, live right. So I wanted to stick with the word right. Just leave Mm -hmm. the word right there. And uh, I even, you know, you can write a ship, which means put it back in the right course. Uh That's what righteousness is, right-making and writing. So I do have it as a verb as well. Uh Um, E.P. Sanders long ago fought for righteousing to be righteous, uh, Hmm. to avoid this word justification. So I chose a non—I try to avoid theological jargon, and not in a bad sense, but— Loaded theological terms I tried to get away from, mm-hmm. and so I did not use the word justification in the whole New Testament.
0: Hmm. Ever. I, I'm trying to process it. Like, the word justification is a word that we're so used to hearing, and maybe we can dovetail in a minute to talk more about justification. Uh, okay,
1: but, but justification, you see, is an Englishing, an anglicizing of the Latin word justicia, justice.
0: So we've S- turned to English a Latin word, and for my listeners, the Bible's not written in Latin. So yeah. w- what's wrong with in- what is Englishizing a Latin word? That, oh, that I mean,
1: it's just that's where that word came from. So mm-hmm. I tried to go back to to the the Greek uh, the Greek core word dikaios, dikaiosune, mm-hmm. dikai-o. Uh So that's why I have.
0: Okay, but right. for my for my listeners, of course, you know, you know, I went to squash and know this stuff. But many of us think that word is like a central word for Christianity. But what you are helping us see is that that's a central word for a translation, not from the actual original text.
1: Yes, it's and it's also um, a big part of a theological tradition. Mm-hmm. It's the Protestants the yes. lutherans and the reformed who think justification is the center of the new testament the mm-hmm. eastern orthodox church doesn't think
0: that yeah and i think you got a few gospels that might agree with you because they don't really talk too much about that either that's right no um, yeah. okay uh so I, i'm just saying like you got the gospels on your side so i feel like you're doing something right um i've got a couple right. other that's right
1: i was right that's right <laughs> that's right Okay, and l- l-
0: let me jump to a gospel reading that I want yeah. to talk through. And I, I, You know, you, you translate the Bible. There's a few verses that they jump out to me that yeah. you know, Romans 3 was one of the first ones. You jumped to it yeah. on yourself already. Um, h- how we deal with the word gospel has been in some ways uh, captivated by the issues from 500 years ago for the Reformers. And... <laughs> The way that you translate Mark 1, I think, is a really helpful uh, translation. And so let me read <clears throat> Mark 1, sorry, in verse 14, or just for, for 14. The season is filled out, and the empire has come close. Convert and be allegiant to the gospel. Now, for some of my listeners, we're used to hearing words like, uh, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom yep. has come close. Uh, Drawn near. They, drawn near in the NIV, right? Drawn near. Okay, yes. Yeah. Um, some of the words that we're not hearing, we're not hearing kingdom, but we get empire instead. Uh, instead of yeah. the, the time has come near, we've got the season is filled out. Uh, repent and believe is replaced by convert and be allegiant. W- which one do you want to start with? Because there's, there's a lot we can pick <laughs> apart there.
1: Yes. Well, and also uh, filled out instead of what, it, what is it the NIV says, the time has been fulfilled.
0: Yeah, I think so. Okay,
1: play Rao is a big word in the Gospels, uh, the mm-hmm. Greek word that usually shows up as, as uh, fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I I decided to use the word filled out because it has that sense of filling up something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if you have a basket and you fill it up, it's play plerun. Okay, mm-hmm. season, the the Greek word kairos, uh, I had to translate and it can be translated time or season, and I use the word season every time that word appears in the New Testament. So I tried to use the same English word for the same Greek word every time I could. It's impossible to do it all the time with every word, but uh, at times I did. I, so why go with season?
0: What what made you go with that one?
1: Um, because I okay the the other word is Chronos. And I use time for Chronos. So Got once it. I use time up, I wasn't going to use time for Kairos. Um, and plus, there's some kooky things that people use. It's a Kairos moment. They're, they're wrong on this, but it's it's fun. People say things. All right, the time the uh, the season the se- is, is filled, filled up, up, uh, and Empire. Now this is this is the one that that's the big one. Uh, I wonder what people are going to say about this, but I've done the, so much of my substack, I haven't gotten pushback yet. Uh, the Greek word is basileia, mm-hmm. and uh, in many contexts in the New Testament, not every one, it uh, clearly has a sense of of empire, as the Roman Empire, as the Roman Empire. You can't use that word, king, kingdom. In the first century Jewish world in Galilee, and not evoke the Roman Empire at some level. Mm-hmm. So I took a so a, a minority reading, and I went with the word empire. Um, come close, rather than draw near. I think that's the sense. As it comes near, it comes close. Convert. Mm-hmm. This is the word for repent. The word repent means to turn around. Mm-hmm. Uh, repent, I think has in english has a little bit more of a sense of feeling sorry for something the word repent in hebrew shuv and in greek now that in greek it means to change your mind to flip around your mind so let's say flip the mental script uh it i i went with the stronger sense of it meaning convert completely turn around and then uh, be allegiant. Now this is a this is an interesting word because this is one of the words that I could not translate consistently in the New Testament. So at one point I was doing everything I can to make every reference allegiant and I realized it didn't have a chance. So the Greek word pistis the the verb pist pistuo um I translate it in three ways. It can mean trust, it can mean be allegiant or it can mean the faith. Mhm. And this is no kidding. At times, I didn't quite flip a coin. But I said, well, the last book I used, the last time this occurred in a different paragraph, I used, I used the word trust. So now I'm going to use allegiance Because mm-hmm. you can't tell the difference many times. So, And then Matt Bates, uh, a friend of mine, has the book Salvation by Allegiance alone. And he's made a big case for this. Teresa Morgan, the great uh, scholar in Oxford... She has a great book on this to show that this word tends to have political connotations of being allegiant to a king. Mm -hmm. So that's, I I like the word allegiant. I would have used it every time
0: had it worked. Hmm. Trust is a word that I am comfortable or familiar with, with that uh, believe, trust, that exchange there. I haven't ever seen allegiant, but I feel like it, it gets the empire kingdom yeah. Uh, you know, feel of what we're looking for instead of this is just, you know, I, I have faith that, like these are feelings I have, or this is, you know, something I don't know to be true, but I'm going to guess it is. Uh, I feel like there's a richer, deeper uh, sense right there. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'm, when I was first reading, I don't know what, what text you jump to when you see a different translation. Do you have a few in your head that you naturally go to Romans three would be one. I, I I've often turned to Romans, Jeff. Uh, okay. But in the in the last
1: few years, I don't think I've done this. I look at the Lord's Prayer to see what people do. Okay. I, I would look at Matthew four seventeen, just the parallel to, that you just read from Mark 1, Hmm. Um, I'd probably dip into the Sermon on the Mount to see what they're doing. Uh huh. But Romans three will give you uh, sometimes a pretty good clue as to what they're doing with their translation theory. Mm-hmm. I sometimes will look in the book of James. Not right now. I would look to uh, passages in the book of revelation because I've been spending so much sure. time in revelation. So, sure. yeah.
0: Okay. I, the one I added, well, the two I had one, my Beatitudes, uh, reading would have been my sermon on the Mount one that you referenced. Um, and I did Christ him. Like that would have been one that mm-hmm. I, I love so much. I feel like it's a, one of my favorite texts. Uh, so I, I jumped there. I want to read that one. And this will be the last time that I nitpick every, uh, you know, choice that you made. But let me read the Christ hymn. This is from Philippians 2. Think this among you, which is also in Christos Jesus, who being in God's form did not consider being equal with God, parentheses, a status to be seized, but hollowed himself, taking a slave's form, becoming representation of humans. And being found in a scheme like a human, he impoverished himself, becoming obedient all the way to death, parentheses, death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him in status and graced him with a name above every name. So at Jesus's name, every knee should bend in the heavens, on the earth and in the underworld. And every tongue openly confess that Jesus Christos is Lord, Father, God's splendor. Did you have confess or agrees? Openly um, uh, agrees. Um,
1: in verse eleven, every tongue openly agrees. Openly agrees. Yeah, that's what I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Is that is right? Uh, did I did no, I say see, confess? I, you had confessed, but I don't. I'm, I'm sorry. Don't it's have, so
0: deeply ingrained in me. Okay. I just miss. I just went <laughs> I back have, to regurgitating. I don't have the
1: absolute final version. Oh, fair there, enough. Were no. some, there were some edits made. In, no, every uh, I time don't have openly
0: account. agrees. So I think yeah. I just couldn't get out of me the NIV that I hmm. learned 30 years ago as a kid or whatever. Um, okay, yeah. can I ask a couple words here? Yeah. Um, did not consider equality with God a status to be seized, but hollowed himself. That word hollowed often gets uh, emptied himself. Yeah. Tell me about the word hollowed instead of empty. And I feel right okay. now like this is really tough questions for you to answer because there's a oh. lot of words that you translate, and I'm asking oh, just yeah. random is. words. So they're not no. random, but you know.
1: Okay, the Greek word is kanao, mm-hmm. and um, I think Golden Gate. I think he uses the word the Hebrew equivalent for for this as hollow. I think I may have picked up that word from him. I may not. Okay. Have. But it means to empty something in the sense that you hollow it out. So mm. you just so I like, I like that translation, hollowed it out. Yeah, um,
0: yeah, it's good. So, I like that. Yeah. You also said being found in a scheme like a human. Sometimes that's tra- translated being found in appearance like a man. Appearance scheme. What, what do you think the word scheme yeah. is? Uh, well, reflective? schema is a form.
1: Is the creation of a form. The mm-hmm. scheme. Mm-hmm. A, a pattern. Uh, the in appearance, I used the word appear, in appearance, for another Greek expression, a phoneo or phonasis words. So I, I couldn't use that word there. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a schema is sort of, a, well, it's like the way we use the word scheme. I have a scheme for winning this game.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: I have a scheme for organizing a sermon. Sure. Okay, sure. so. Yeah. I like it. No, that's yeah. good. We that's have a good. scheme for our annual
0: Easter program. so yeah. we, we do so, have some schemes like that. I like it. Yeah. Okay, so here's a quote you have at the beginning where you say, um, as a young professor, I learned in reading linguistic scholars that a word has no more meaning in a given verse than it must have, and the opposite tendency sometimes rules our perception. We give it our special theological terms for more meaning than they can bear in a context. And so what you tried to do is like you, you said, you de mm-hmm. some of our pet terms so that it could get more to the accurate meaning that was originally intended. So when we talk about certain things like atonement or gospel or salvation, we have certain connotations that we dump into them that yep. might not necessarily be in the text.
1: Is that fair yep. to say? Ex- exactly. Exactly. So um, what I noticed, this was really early on. I mean, I started with the Gospel of Matthew as a sample for my editor, mm-hmm. and then I decided to go away from the, I Then I started just going back and forth in different le- uh, parts of the New Testament. Uh, the standard Greek lexicon that everybody gets in seminary now is Bauer, Ark, Gingrich, Danker. Yeah. Okay? b It's purple. Uh, yeah, yeah b Okay. I'm looking for mine um, on the shelf over there. When I look at it, when I re- would go to that, I would think, uh-uh. These are so Christianized translations. So the tradition of interpreting words, translating words theologically, has become to the point where you see a word like dikaio, and you say justification, but that has a theological history. Then you look at a standard, uh, Liddell and Scott, a classical Greek grammar, Mm -hmm. a, a lexicon, and I had two of them on my shelf all the time, the the new Brill one, which is a reduction of of Liddell and Scott, and the new Cambridge uh, Greek lexicon, they won't even use those terms. Yeah. So I tried to uh, do what John Goldengate did, and that is to eliminate religious jargon and traditional theological translations and give uh, words that would have been ordinary words for a first century b- uh, new believer— who would not have heard with the word let's say pistis would not have heard uh faith versus works they would have heard allegiance you know we're used to pistis with our emperor mm-hmm. so that, so that was that, that's that's what happened i tried to and i really believe in that statement by eugene nida is that we should we should do our best to make sure the word means no more in its context than it had to have Mm-hmm. And that for instance, uh, you find at the beginning of Paul's letters words like grace. Well, it's not a theological uh you don't preach the doctrine of grace in, in Ephesians one one. You wait till Paul discusses it in chapter two. Yeah. Uh
0: in chapter one it means hello. You yeah. know it means hi. Peace. How you doing? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I have stumbled into the series um that is I, I think Marcus Borg wrote a book uh, with the title "But uh, Speaking Christian," which I think that's. A, I think I ripped off that title from a book that he wrote 15 years ago or something like that. I don't know. I didn't mm. come up with it myself. Just you're giving me a look right now. I don't. I don't want to yeah. know what it means. But yeah.
1: Oh well, I didn't know Marcus Borg wrote that book. I don't know that one, but I, that sounds know, I, like Mark.
0: I should have researched that, but uh, nevertheless, yeah. um, it, it's a it's a serious function. It's talking about like the basic definition of Christian words, and so yeah one of the words I did was love. And I I heard this definition of love that is a rugged commitment to be with and for someone unto Christ likeness. I think you might have heard that before as I think you said that um, or at least that's been attributed to you. And this week I'm talking about the word atonement, which is another one of those words that has a lot of meanings that we've dumped onto it. And so I actually, mm -hmm. when I got the email from your publisher, was reading your book that came out years ago, A Community Called Atonement, because I loved the golf metaphor that you use for atonement images, and you're a golfer. I am not a golfer. I don't, Mm. I don't play golf. I understand the sport, but I love the idea that these images that we're so accustomed to represent all these different ways that the early Christians tried to articulate what exactly happened in atonement. But there's, but we've typically understood that there's just one club. There's one way to describe it. And it's the only way. And so in the years since that book has come out, as you've heard conversations about atonement, and you think back to what you wrote with that, especially that, that golf club metaphor, where there's a bunch of different clubs in the bag, they all have a place. Um, do you feel like the golf club metaphor holds up over time?
1: Uh, I'm glad you asked. You know, I I looked for a copy of that book on my shelf. <laughs> I can't find a copy of the, of the book, and I don't know where it is. Uh, probably upstairs somewhere. But... Um, I I totally believe in that that golf club analogy, that uh, that different words like justification, reconciliation, propitiation, expiation, whichever, however you translate it, uh, redemption, etc., liberation, whichever, uh, each one of those is an important golf club in the back. And there are times when we need to emphasize the word liberation and times when we need to emphasize the word justification and times when we need to emphasize the word forgiveness and other times when we need to emphasize the word transformation. And all those words are used for the benefit of the gospel, the death and resurrection ascension of Jesus and the gift of the spirit. So we need to be versatile enough to know which golf club to play depending on where we are on the golf course. Mm -hmm. So what speed to go in your car, depending on
0: what street you're on. Thank you for doing a different metaphor for me, uh, (laughs) as I'm not a golfer. But nevertheless, why do you think there's just one club, the Penal Substitutionary Atonement Club, that seems to be emphasized over the others for us Western Christians?
1: You know, um, I tried to figure this out when I wrote that book. And yeah. Also, it it came up so big when I was working on the King Jesus Gospel Project. Mm-hmm. Um, it is really uh, embedded in American white evangelicalism, but it's not embedded in African American evangelicalism or Mexican American evangelicalism. If you even want to call some of those forms evangelical anymore, I think we've learned that we, we don't think that's the best term for anything. But Um, it's effective in the sense that it puts the ultimate judgment on the table for a decision. That, That God's wrath, God's ultimate punishment of hell is on the table and Jesus paid the price by assuming that punishment for us. That seems to be Uh, The reason for me as to why people are so stuck on that, it has proven itself rhetorically effective in generating decisions and precipitating changes in people's lives over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, What struck me when I worked on atonement way back 20 years ago was... The absence of specific texts that actually teach it the way people believe it. Hmm. That concerned me. I mean, you don't really have, I mean, he who knew no sin became sin. Mornahooker Hooker called this the great exchange. Um, it's close, and death is a punishment in, uh, for sin. And if Jesus becomes sin, he's become the punishment, you know, death and mm-hmm. he died for us. So that's sort of the origins of penal substitution. Uh, and I don't deny that, but I just don't think that it's the only golf club to play in the game. And I don't think there is one golf club. Now, one friend of mine told me, but every hole you use a putter. So he was convinced that you had to have that on everything. And I said, you know, sometimes I knock the ball in from off the green.
0: <laughs> he said, it's so rare. So yeah. and it is rare. Yeah. Well, uh, I think the problem with metaphors is that eventually they do break down, and even a golf yeah. club metaphor can at, you know, come up short yeah. at some point because we don't always have to use PSA. Um, I, I think in King Jesus Gospel, I feel like you have this line where uh, we've become— like, I'm botched. This is off the top of my head. I haven't read that book in, in years, no offense. Uh, but I feel like the line was, something like, we become a salvation culture instead of a gospel culture. And salvation culture yeah. is really good at making disciples, or really good at making decisions, but not you know, making disciples. There was that metaphor, exact. like that language of decisions. PSA is great for decisions, but not so good with making disciples. I'd agree with that. And
1: um, anybody who emphasizes just accepting Jesus into your heart as the essence of the, the let's say, the response to the gospel uh, is in that soterian or salvation culture gospel. And I don't think that's at all what Jesus
0: is saying. He doesn't say anything like that. He's calling people to follow him. Yeah. You have this, this great line in that, uh, that book, A Community Called Atonement, where you say, I contend that to be saved is to be renewed in the true image of God as women and men in Christ, to have our relationally restored Uh, To have our relationally restored so that our sinful selves, hopelessly incurvatus in say, turned in on themselves, which that's Augustine, right? Um, Are are set free to be new creations in true divine and human koinonia. This this idea that salvation leads to new creation. Some of us haven't even associated the idea of new creation as one of the ways that atonement is imaged in scripture. Yeah. How does that... Change the way we understand salvation when it's like new creation. What? How does that golf club help us? Yeah. Um, okay. I mean the the thing is, uh,
1: in the New Testament, the gospel is to encounter Jesus Christ, is to encounter Him as Lord and Savior, Messiah, you know, Lamb of God, whatever, and to get connected to Him and to all that He brings. And what he's going to do is lead the people who are connected to him into nothing less than a kingdom shaped life mm-hmm. and anything that sells that short is selling the gospel itself short, so it's a it's a full orb transformation of a new life, new creation, mm. yeah.
0: yeah, amen to that. Um, okay, so your new translation comes out uh, maybe a week or so after this podcast. Um, the second testament—that's the title, right? The second testament, a new translation. Okay, uh, someone picks it up. They're accustomed to having a tra- a translation that's heavily uh, focused on the English instead of the Greek. It it, it might feel a little different. What is your warning to them? It's like, I'm reading this for the first time. It's helping me enter into the experience of the original audience more so than maybe an English translation that kind of maybe waters some of this down for me. What encouragement would you give to them as they're kind of dealing with what might feel like some un, uh, uncomfortable or awkward phrasing?
1: Um, Luke, it's the right, right, It's the right question. I want, I want people to feel awkward, a little Ambiguous, a little bit like, have I read this before? Uh, I'm having to slow down to figure out what you're saying, and I'm saying, exactly, that's what I'm trying to do, get you to slow down and feel the text in a different way. I hope you won't be able to read it and skim it quickly because it won't work the way people, uh, most of our easy English translations work. It's not like the New Living Translation or Tom Wright's Kingdom New Testament, or the NIV, or the NRSVUE, or any of those trans. It's not like that. And so skimming is going to be impossible. And I transliterate names, because uh, when we turn the word Jacobos into James, we lose the connection to the tribal leaders of of Genesis. So um, all those things are going on to slow people down and to give them a different feel and... I cannot tell you the number of people who've said it was so refreshing to get blown away by what you translated that I had to go look at all the other translations and thought this was
0: fun to do. And I thought that's what I'm trying to accomplish. Well, amen. And uh, congratulations on this. I Well, thanks, I, Luke. I don't know how to rank it with a 6'9 high jump or a 49-foot shot put, but all those are very impressive. And wh- whichever one you hold up to be higher... You know, that's your choice. But congratulations on all those. It'll be the second test. That's a good one. A lot harder work.